0: Well, so nice to see all of you on a Wednesday night, and there are some of you that I don't know, so I'm so glad if you are visiting here from uh, the community and you saw our sign and stopped in. We're so glad that you were here. You're in for a treat because we have our bishop here, Bishop John Howard. Uh, you may know that I was minding my own business uh, doing uh, my job in Birmingham, and my phone rang, and I didn't answer it. I don't know anybody from Jacksonville. And, um, and I listened to the message, and it was the Bishop of Florida, so I, I called back, and here I am. So um, I, am, um, I uh, am very grateful, so very, very grateful, and you've been such a kind uh, friend to me. Um, so we're really excited to hear what you have to say, and particularly excited that you brought Nejma uh, with you, but fairly disappointed that you didn't bring Marie. Um, we, uh, I do want to let you know that next week, uh, please, uh, please come, because this is it's going to be a really wonderful thing. That The chaplain uh, at the University of Florida, uh, the Episcopal chaplain, uh, his name is Adam Young. He's a, a long friend of mine, probably uh, five or six years. We actually worked together for a little bit at the cathedral in Birmingham. Um, he is uh, doing a great job. Uh, but percentage-wise, he's grown up by about 1,000% or something like that already. Uh, it is, um, he's doing a great job, and he is in, as you can imagine, a very difficult uh, context, um, a pluralistic context uh, in the university, and he's going to uh, ask the question, um, can there only be one way to heaven? And, and so he deal, those are things he deals with uh, all the time. But tonight, the difficult question is, uh, can Christians fight and love at the same time? Uh, I called in an expert uh, in this, <laughs> uh, so uh, I would love uh, for the eighth bishop of Florida, uh, John Howard, to come and lay some knowledge on us, all right, and uh, you you can talk as long as you want, as long as you don't want to talk past 744, uh, that's, that's, yeah. Be you go. You good.
1: That your thank you, sir. can you all hear me? Is that good? Well thank you. It is great to be with you. I love these uh, Wednesday nights in Lent at Church of our Savior. I've been doing this since the days of uh, John Pauline, and I don't feel like Lent's really started until I'm here with you all. so thank you very much. Uh, a couple of uh, a couple of comments to you and then I, I want us to really begin with a word of prayer, but uh, Let me say regarding um, uh, Marie's absence, Marie is in uh, Miami right now. She has a special joy for a mother of having one of her sons, we have two boys, most of you, a lot of you know, uh, both of whom have been in graduate school. They both have now received PhDs within the last six months. Um, The younger one is an art historian, uh, an unemployed art historian, which I'm hearing (laughs) is is not an unusual state of affairs for an art historian particularly a beginning one and and he is um uh substitute teaching at the episcopal school here in jacksonville he got a two-month gig because a seventh grade and eighth grade uh geography of all things and history teacher had a baby and so he's he's a two two two-month long substitute which is nice for daddy's bank account and uh as as well as uh, Charles's bank account. But he's still an art historian, and he wanted to go to a museum or two in Miami and look at some interesting buildings there. And so he and Marie are off on a a mother-son excursion, which they haven't had the opportunity to do many times in their lives. Marie, of course, knows where I'm going to be tonight, She regrets not being here. She sends her love, her affection to every one one of you and anyone who knows her knows how she does love you. But she told me one thing. She said, you're talking about uh, fighting. You're talking about disagreements, disputes, animosity between people. She said, I better not hear tell that you even mentioned your (laughs) mother-in-law. And I said, well, Marie, if she's mentioned, it'll be in the context of prayer. At any rate, that's the the message from Marie. And regarding this story that Joe Gibbs tells about me picking up the phone and calling, it's true. I I admit it. Uh, it, And it's one of the smartest phone calls I have ever made. Am I right? (laughs) The The way Joe tells the story, it reminds me of the line that a Roman Catholic bishop friend of mine former bishop of the Diocese of Raleigh, my hometown up in North Carolina, uh, told not long ago he was at a, a big dinner giving some kind of huge award to a couple of members of the Diocese of, uh, of, of Raleigh, one of whom happens to be Marie's brother. They, they had co-chaired the Capitol, he, he and this other man, had co-chaired the Capitol campaign that raised... I don't know how, how many tens of millions of dollars to build a new cathedral for the Diocese of Raleigh. And the bishop was telling the story. He said, well, I, I, I called Henry, that's, that's Marie's brother, on the phone and, and told him that I wanted him to take this job. And he said, well, uh, well, Bishop, I, I need to pray about it and I need to speak to my wife about it. And, uh, and Bishop Burbridge said, well, Henry, you talk to your wife all you like, but I've already prayed about it. Now, Episcopal bishops don't get away with that kind of line, but Catholic bishops do, and, and it works. So. And thank you for welcoming Nejma, my spiritual director and, um, and chaplain. Uh, you see that she knows how to go to church. She doesn't expect me to be sitting in a pew, so she had to go up inside the rail to check things out and make sure it was suitable before she came and lay back down to worship. She knows how to go to church. She knows how to process in beside me. She'll process out beside me when I'm on visitation. And when I preach, she does exactly what all of you do. She falls sound asleep. (laughs) So, well, listen, tonight we're going to talk about uh, how Christians uh, can disagree with one another and still remain in a loving relationship. And I think we'll probably start out by talking about whether, in fact, that's possible. So uh, before we uh, before we begin talking, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, gracious God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this church, for uh, for its clergy, for the people who worship here regularly, for the community which uh, it serves, and all of those uh, to whom it reaches out in your name, with the love, the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Be with us tonight, Lord, as we talk about how we as Christians are called to live with one another, to disagree with one another, uh, and yet uh, to love one another in your name. In uh, all of this we pray in the name of him who loved us so much that he died on the cross for us, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Um, a lot of good stories in the Bible about, uh, about religious people uh, falling out with each other and fighting. Uh, let me start, though, by saying to you that I hope you're taking the way that I'm dressed tonight as a sign of humility, which is at the core of everything I'm going to talk about. I didn't come wearing a purple shirt or a cassock tonight. I didn't come dressed in, in silk or lace. I came dressed like I've just come from work. And the reason is I'm coming before you humbly admitting to you and I think it's a good starting point for any Christian conversation humbly admitting to you that I could be wrong about anything I'm going to say to you tonight unless it comes from this book. Okay? If it comes from this book you can rely on it and I'll be careful to highlight it when it does. But if you're like I am, I don't like to go to church and get a lot of advice. I don't need a preacher, a priest, a, a rector, a pastor to stand before me and give me advice about how to live unless it's on a sound theological basis. And for me, that means from the words of Holy Scripture and best of all, from the lips of Jesus Christ. That's the authority that we have. I go to church and some, somebody in, in, in robes starts telling me how to live. I sort of resent it. And so don't take anything I say tonight as advice, solicited or unsolicited. I want to talk to you theologically, and mainly I'm dressed the way I am because I want to be part of a conversation with you. I'm going to tell you about a couple of times in my life when I felt really uh, 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 put off by the way, by the attitude of those who disagreed with me. And I'd love to solicit from you, and and I hope the empty pews up here are just examples that you really are Episcopalians and not that you don't want to participate. (laughs) But, um, uh, you know, I was at the House of Bishops last week. Guess what? The front two rows were always empty. (laughs) You know, a bunch of guys who make their living sitting up front and they can't sit in the front pew for church? um, At any rate, let me tell you two times, two fairly dramatic times in my life. Uh, number one I can be pretty brief about them all number one 15 years ago I came to this diocese and uh, and 20% of the clergy of this diocese up and left the Episcopal church because they didn't agree with me and the only thing we really disagreed on was that I I was committed to staying part of the Episcopal church we agreed on almost everything else I mean theologically and, and in terms of questions about marriage and ordination and everything else I was with the ones who left but I was also with those who didn't want to leave. And, and uh, the, the hate mail, the threats, my son off in college, freshman, the one who's off tour, touring Miami right now with Marie, he got hate mail on his computer. Somehow they found out his, his address, and they were sending this 18-year-old freshman in college hate. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Yes, you can. Yes, you can imagine. Um, that's example number one. In the last few months, because I'm still an Episcopalian, an Episcopal bishop who still agrees with those who left, I've been getting some pretty ugly mail from people on the other side of those issues. It still carries on. My, my skin's a lot thicker. E- either my skin's gotten thicker in 15 years or old age is leading to nerve loss. But <laughs> whichever it is, it's still going on. And the third instance that I will bet, if you will admit it, you can identify with is this. I've lost a very good friend over the 2016 election. Anybody here lost a good friend over the 2016 election? I see a few heads nodding around. There. And the reason was I'm 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 bound and determined to remain non-political. I just don't take sides in elections. I tell my clergy, I I don't tell them, that. I beseech them not to get political <laughs> not to get political in the pulpit. I never do. you'd have to put a private eye on me to know how I vote, I guarantee you. You might might speculate, you might guess, but you don't know, and I ain't going to tell you. And because of that, I lost a very good friend after the 2016 election because I didn't take a clear side, and I won't tell you which side I didn't take (laughs) that my friend really wanted me to. So how do Christians endure these kinds of events in our lives And what is the Lord calling us to do with our friends, with our neighbors, with those we love, within the church? Now, it's a different set of issues. We're talking about dealing with non-Christians, and I hope to deal with that for a moment tonight, too, because I think Scripture addresses that. But how many of you have had those kinds of experiences in your life? Anybody, Anybody want to share? Anybody want to tell me a particularly dramatic, maybe even painful experience that you've had? like the ones I described? Well, you don't have to. But if there is one, don't, don't you know families that have broken up? I, 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 I had a, uh, an elderly woman in my congregation once who was dying, who had not heard from her children for one son in particular, like 15 years she's a 90 year old woman for goodness sake she's on her deathbed she's saying her prayers and she's lying there already with her heart broken because her 65 year old son won't pick up the darn phone and call her now how about that and you know the reason he wouldn't call her because he was upset with the way she had handled his father's death and she was ba- he was bound and determined to live it out in her life, too, and make her pay. Anybody, does that sound familiar to anybody? One hand's up in the back. These are real things. As a young lawyer, and I, I did better or worse practice law for a number of years, one of, one of the uh, first things that a, that a judge in Wake County, North Carolina, and Raleigh took pity on me because he saw I was starving. I couldn't feed my wife. And he appointed me to be the, the guardian, the caretaker for an elderly woman who owned about half of what's now Cary, North Carolina. She was rich, rich even then, and Cary hadn't developed the way it is now. You, you know Cary? Containment area for retired Yankees. <laughs> very, very rich town. Right, very rich town right outside of Raleigh. He appointed me to, to, to care for, for this old woman. And I call her name, and if you ever went to Cary, You'd see streets named for her and her family. She was that important. She was from. It. They wouldn't talk to her. She wouldn't talk to them. And none of them would talk to me, including me. And I'm the one the court appointed to take care of her. Why? Because of a catalog of grievances and alienating events and anger over the years. To everyone's detriment, no one's advantage, and the kids still wound up getting the money. I mean, you know, that's what they were arguing about was what at that time was probably 10 or 15 million dollars, and by today's standards, would probably be 75 million dollars in Kerry, North Carolina real estate. It had once been a dairy farm. I mean, her, her husband and her daddy farmed cows on that land. And they suddenly were rich, and the family couldn't deal with it, and they couldn't deal with one another, and they didn't want to talk to one another, and they got angry with one another and finally wound up contemptuously, contemptuously dealing with one another. I was raised in a home in which uh, uh, my, my, my parents were, were both uh, uh, very earnest, very committed Christians. My father being the, uh, the more Episcopalian of the two, my, my mother came from a long line of Presbyterians and Baptists, believe it or not. I uh, had a great uncle who was... Uh, the only, the only American Baptist chaplain to die in the First World War. How about that? And a oh, Great uncle. Great uncle, I guess. But, but my father, being the more Episcopalian of the two, would sit around on every Sunday lunch after church. And, and if there was anything miraculous or supernatural in the sermon, he would poo-poo it. He would explain it away over lunch. And usually, of course, this was an Episcopal church, so the rector had already done a pretty good job of poo-pooing it himself. He didn't want to talk about miracles or supernatural, right? And my father was sort of Thomas Jefferson-like in, in his approach to religion. He really wanted to dispel any of this kind of mysterious supernatural stuff that might, be, uh, might weigh on my heart or any of the rest of the family's heart. And, and so that's how we would spend Sunday lunch. But my father taught me, one of the most valuable lessons of my life at the dinner table. And it was, we're going to argue. We're going to have some political debates, some debates about religion, but you can express yourself respectfully. And I expect you to express yourself well and to grow up knowing how to talk and how to deal with adults and visit with them. But remember this, son. There are two sides to every question. My direct quote from my blessed... I hope, saved, Father, that, that you say what you want to say, but you say it respectfully, and acknowledge right up front that there are two sides, and you might be wrong. That's why I come to you tonight saying to you, whatever I say about you, this subject, I might be wrong. And that's a prayer that I say, really, in my, in my work as your bishop. Day after day, when I'm confronted by an important decision I say a word of prayer. Lord, I know I may be wrong. I know you are never wrong. Therefore, give me your vision. Give me your words to say, your actions to take in order that I might be right. You know, infuse your Holy Spirit in me in this moment so that I might do the correct thing, the proper thing, the fair thing, the just thing, and yes, the Christian thing about this particular matter. And I can tell you that The moments when I have listened, he's helped me. The moments that I haven't, some of the worst disasters of my time as your bishop. And I won't even go through recounting them to you. But a lot of them arose, not surprisingly, in the middle of some of the disputes that I've just talked to you about. Things going on here 15 years ago. Things that may have gone on in in the last year or so. As, as others who are here now disagreeing with me, who, who loved me being their bishop 15 years ago, but now don't like the guy they wound up with as their bishop. You got it? Because he doesn't agree with them on everything. So there are two sides to every question. And I think that if I had a blackboard, and there's not one in the church, thank goodness. Can you imagine what preachers would do that with that on Sunday morning? <laughs> if I had a blackboard the word at the top would be humility. Would be humility. What does, what does that mean to you and me? What does it mean to be humble in this kind of context? Well, first and foremost, I think it, it means just what I've said to you, acknowledging that you don't know everything, right? And you're not going to be right all the time. Acknowledging that someone else may be a little bit more in touch with the truth and the way that things ought to be going than you are. It takes a, a humble person once they put all that silk and lace on you and that miter on your head and giving you a stick to go around and whack people with, right? <laughs> that you actually get to walk into it, it takes a little bit of humility to admit that I, don't, I shouldn't be thinking about using that stick. I ought to be thinking about your minds and your hearts and, and, and trying to dis, decipher God's will and to catch at least a glimpse of his vision in order that I can try to help the rest of the church, live it out. And that takes humility. Isn't humility really the message of the, of the fundamental law? And I'm not a big law person. I, I used to practice law and I left it when I figured out that law wasn't going to save us. Paul was right. It's the grace of God that's ultimately going to save us. And I, I was in court one day. I was representing a young African-American man who got caught up in um, a, um, a, a migrant labor situation. He, he, he was working for two older, also African-American men, and they had a, 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 a crew of migrant laborers working the tomato fields of Johnston County, North Carolina. Anybody ever go through Johnston County on I-95? Benson, Dunn, all that area through there? And believe it or not, the U.S. Department of Justice came down and prosecuted my client and the two older guys. He was the least involved of the three uh, for keeping white men in slavery. What do you think of that one? black men being charged with holding white men. First slavery case under the federal statute since Reconstruction, since the years right after the Civil And who called it? <laughs> Moi. There I am. And I like the guy. His, 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 I, I, I couldn't understand where he was from. The first time we interviewed, I heard him telling me that he was from Allander, well, there's a little town up in eastern North Carolina, northeastern North Carolina, not far from Norfolk, called Allander. So I thought he was from... It turned out he was from Orlando. But, but I didn't know that until long after the trial was over, and it didn't make any difference in the trial anyway. but His name was Tony Gibson. Tony was convicted along with the other men. But I can remember sitting in the courtroom when it was all over thinking, Lord, what has really been achieved here today? This young man, his wife and baby in her arms, sitting in the say pew say pew—sitting in the in, in the bench behind me at the defense table. She's in tears. He's in—he in tears. He doesn't know what's hit him. And I'm thinking, what what possible purpose has this trial served? The men who were held in slavery—and they were—have moved on to something else. They bought their liquor somewhere else For you know, or stolen the money from somebody to do it or worked a day labor job to get it. And my client at least, I don't know about the older guys, but my client at least has been whacked for life, convicted of a felony. He's going to be sent away to prison that doesn't make for a juster, kinder, more benevolent, more loving society in one bit. You know, sure, the, the chief of the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Justice Department came down to argue the case for the government, and I'm sitting there about a 26, 27-year-old lawyer trying to combat that. But what was achieved by it? What was achieved by it? It was retribution. It was just sheer making somebody pay a price for the sake of headlines on television and in newspapers that was the minute I said, Lord, I hear Paul talking to me. That's Saint Paul. And he's telling me the law is not going to save these people. It's not going to save me. It's not going to save our notion. It's the grace of God that will save us. Lord, show me how to go share that grace instead of the rules with people. One reason I think that I'm glad to be in the job I'm in I get to talk about the grace of God. I get to talk about his love and mercy and forgiveness. And I get to remind good Christian people like you that it's that love and mercy and grace at the heart of all of our relationships. At the heart of all of our relationships that's of the essence. It's remembering that Christ died for my client. (laughs) He was on the cross because of what that young guy I represented in court was going to do someday. He was also there dying for the ones to whom he did it. He was there dying for me and for the prosecuting attorney. And I switched sides about a year later and went over to that side. And boy, did I really need the love, mercy, and grace of God over there. And not only that, but he died for the judge. Christ died for the federal. Anybody here a federal judge? I got to be careful. No. <laughs> Christ died for federal judges. And mayors and congressmen and senators and presidents. And people who used to run for president. Christ died for all of us. He gave us a gift that's that's Now you're saying to me, "Well, John, what does that have to do with how Christians argue with each other?" It has this to do with it. Because once you acknowledge that the grace of God is evenly distributed. How about that? That there's no hierarchy of sins. Christ didn't die any more for me, a scarlet, red, miserable sinner, than he did for you who might have imagined at one point in your life what it might be like to do something wrong. (laughs) Right? the grace of God, evenly distributed. How can I hold you in contempt? How can I refuse to call you on the phone, mother? How can I walk away from my friend simply because he didn't endorse a presidential candidate from the pulpit? How can I refuse to discuss sports with you just because you're a Florida State fan? Florida fan? Duke fan, Carolina fan, whatever school it is. Don't you know people like that? The grace of God, evenly distributed across humanity, calls us to acknowledge our inability to perfectly understand, perfectly express, and perfectly believe everything we say. I'm not always right. better answer that. <laughs> Maybe somebody calling Joe Gibbs again. Watch out. <laughs> no, I'm on second thought. Don't answer, Joe. Don't answer the phone. Okay. Um, I'm mindful that I might always be, 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 be wrong. And I, you know, if, if that's a, a good piece of advice you want to listen to, that's, that's good. I would invite you to it. Also, I want to say a word, one of the, two of the people I admire the most, one now deceased, um, I've told you about one of those, my father, who really did teach me how to think through things and how to talk with other people about them and to be respectful and to respect people in terms of the way I express myself. Two people I admire, many of the same reasons. The late uh, Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia, remember Justice Scalia, great man, brilliant lawyer, incisive thinker, very conservative. I mean, you could hold Ronald Reagan up to Antonin Scalia, and you would see in Reagan an ultra-liberal. I mean, Scalia was what Scalia was. You know who his best friend on the court was? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Male, Italian, Roman Catholic, conservative Republican, female, Jewish Liberal, how about it? And you know why they liked each other because they had so much in common and that 's what they would say we have we both enjoy music and we like art and we both love a good meal and we like to go out together and take our my husband, his wife, and just enjoy time together and you know, there 's some wisdom in in, in that I, I think that a that someone who's intent on um, being in a healthy relationship and enjoying the occasional disagreement, along with the frequent agreements, simply picks his subjects, picks her su- her subjects a little bit more wisely. You know, I made a mistake over dinner, my friend. I said, "Well, you know, what'd you think of what happened in the election two weeks ago?" Eh. And well, where were you, Bishop? Didn't hear you saying anything about it. Did you even bother to vote? Well, yeah, I did. Well, why didn't you talk to us about it? We need some spiritual guidance on these things. Not for me. I'm not going to advise you on how to vote. That's your... your Now, you want to listen to my sermons... And you want to gain some, some inference of what I think about the power of God in society and how, how he wills for his people to live and, and, and what Jesus says about what it means to be his brothers, his sisters, and children of his heavenly father and the kind of work that he's doing in your life and in the life of our, our nation, often in very unseen way, then help yourself. But I'm going to tell you how to cast your ballot. I might be wrong. I might be wrong well if uh, the church has found different ways through the years to cope with some of, some of these things a um, couple of quick stories from the Bible they actually both come from uh, the same part of the book of Acts uh, I, I, I told Joe a while ago that I, uh, I have a file a, a hefty file that I prepared for now. I've been thinking about this for, for a long time and prepared a lot, of, uh, a lot of notes actually. And I was racing out the door this afternoon and I picked up the file and brought it but I forgot my legal pad and all of my notes for tonight were in the legal pad and I hadn't bothered to tear them out and put them in the file yet. So, so I'm, I, I kind of forgive me if I scramble but if you go to the, um, the, 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 the 15th chapter of the book of Acts later you don't need to look at it right now What that describes is the first great council of the church. The uh, council of Jerusalem. The council of Jerusalem was one of the... uh, well, It was maybe the most significant single meeting in the absence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at any meeting in church history. Do you you know why why the, the apostles, many of them, gathered in Jerusalem for the council? Because they had to decide literally... Who could be a Christian? It was that fundamental at that point. That was the issue on the line. You wouldn't say, today there's nobody you you would say can't be a Christian, is there? But the early Christians were debating it because there was an active and a lively and vibrant and responsible, thoughtful group in the church who believed that you first must be a good Jew before you can be a Christian. That was the argument at the Council of Jerusalem. Well, a little bit easier back in those days to discuss that question except whichever side it comes down on for a woman than for a man. Because first becoming a Jew involves some surgery. Okay? And that was what the argument was about. Must I be, if, if, if I'm a Greek, if I'm an Italian, if I'm a, a Pole, if I'm a Czech, if I'm a, an Englishman, must I first have surgery and become a Jew, literally, before I can be accepted as a Christian? And that's what they were debating about. First count, very, because it doesn't just go to, to circumcision. That, that was the immediate issue. But it goes to questions of lifestyle, what you can eat, where you can live, what you do for a living, whether you can work for a bank and loan money, all kinds of stuff is involved in in that in the Council of Jerusalem met to resolve it. It could have been a knockdown, drag out battle. It could have divided the church fundamentally within just a decade of the death and resurrection of our Lord so that it could never recover. And yet, James, the brother of Jesus, was presiding. He was the Pope at that meeting, right? He was the bishop sitting up front. Paul and Peter were both there and they came together and they reconciled their differences and they said well we need to write to the world and tell them that this religion's for all of us. Again Christ died for all of us and his grace is evenly distributed no more to Jews than to Gentiles if you will love and accept the grace and mercy and and peace that you can know in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that's where the council of Jerusalem came down on the first really fundamental question about Christian theology and membership. It could have ended in disaster. But they did several important things. What would I, what would I bring away from that council as, as learnings that I can uh, better know how to, to to handle the church, and you can know Better know how to, how, how to handle your life in, in the church by looking at it. First of all, they came together. Nobody refused to call mom just because of what she had done 15 years before, okay? They were there, they showed up. Showing up, Woody Allen once said, 90% of <laughs> that, that's 90% of life is just showing up. So come together. Don't be afraid to sit down with those to whom you're opposed and to work things out. Second, once they were together, they listened with respect, with civility, and with love for one another because they all knew that they were saved by Jesus Christ and therefore he was calling them to be in relationship. And a quick digression, okay, a footnote. Nobody Cursed at anyone else. I hear so much, you know, what my mother would have called shameful language, and it's being used in the most inappropriate settings. I'm yet to hear it in a in a church service, but I, I want you to know I've heard it in committee me- meetings, board meetings. Uh, it's just. There's nothing more alienating, off-putting, or relationship-killing than bad language. And let's, let's do give our children some advice on that. Give our grandchildren some advice on that. Okay? Anybody with me on that? Okay. They met. They talked responsibly they 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 loved each other, and finally, and this was in in part thanks to thanks to James who presided over the meeting. They sat down and wrote a letter recording what they had done, so that the results of their conversation would be a witness to all the world and The letter simply said there are a few simple conditions about what it takes to be a Christian, you know. Don't eat meat that's been already offered to another God, to an idol. Don't do that. Don't drink the blood from those animals. Those are kind of fundamental ritual things from that time. And the other thing was accept and love Jesus Christ, the fundamental component of church church membership to this day. That came out of well, interesting to note though, the very same chapter of the book of Acts, uh, great success, Council of Jerusalem, has to be considered. What happens within weeks is that Paul's taking off on another missionary journey and you know how he and Barnabas have been joined at the hip and they've traveled the Mediterranean world together sharing the gospel. Well, Paul and Barnabas have an argument after the meeting's over because Paul is put off by earlier behavior by Mark, John Mark, who was an early disciple, and probably the author of the gospel, right? And doesn't want Mark to travel with them. And so he and Barnabas wind up splitting up. And they each they go in separate directions. Barnabas takes Mark with him. Paul gets another sidekick and takes off. And here's a remarkable thing. God at work in our lives and how nothing is final until we're standing before his judgment throne and see him face-to-face Years later, guess what? Mark is included in the list of Christians that Paul is writing to, thanking them for their assistance and their prayers. So God's been at work even in that relationship through the years. They, they, they couldn't travel together right then. They couldn't head off in the same direction. They had some fundamental disagreements about ministry and, and where they should go and how they should get there and how fast they should travel. But the, underlining, the underlying reason, the purpose, the motivation, the one, and that is Jesus who is inspiring it all, remain the same. So right, read, read, if you will, sometime later Acts 15. And you'll see the resolution to one great debate in, in the church that could have really resulted in disaster for us all. But you'll see how even in the wake of that, there's still disagreements between us. And sometimes you just don't need to be around. Remember, love and like are not the same. Love and like are not the same. Love is, I'm commanded to love you. Love is an act of the will. There's some pretty unlikable people out there. People that I wouldn't choose just to sit around and watch a Cubs game with. They might be Dodgers fans. I don't know. It's unpredictable. But, But I may not like them, because grace and the love of God is evenly distributed, because we are taught and we're told that when I look at the person who despises me the most, I'm supposed to see the face of Jesus Christ. I'm supposed to see and not. you're a likable bunch, I see Jesus in every one of your faces, but there's some folks out there that I might not agree with that on, you know and yet I must see the face of Jesus Christ or I'm not following him. That's scriptural. <laughs> That's not just John Howard's opinion. That's scriptural. Christ died for the least likable person in the worst situation on earth or he didn't die for any of us. There's a book that came out recently um, that I, I hope I stuck that what I had on that. And, yeah, I did. Here it is. It's a book that, that you, might, um, you might enjoy. If I had a blackboard, I'd write the title up on the, on the wall. Um, it's by a man named Arthur C. Brooks. Arthur C. Brooks is the, was the chairman of a group called the American Enterprise Institute. So this was from the Wall Street Journal. You won't be surprised to know. He has written a book entitled Love Your Enemies. Pretty good, huh? Pretty cre- I'm And Arthur C. Brooks is a Christian. Uh, Love your enemies. Listen to the rest of the title. How decent people, let's say Christian people, may we, among us, among friends, can we say among, how Christian people can save America, can we say can save the church, from the culture of contempt. From the culture of contempt. Anger Mr. Brooks writes, is an emotion that occurs when we want to change someone's behavior and believe we can do so. <laughs> That's anger. Anybody here ever get angry? Is that described, does that describe it? I find confession time, um, I find I get angriest when somebody's acting a way that I act that I really don't like myself for. That's when I get the angriest, okay? Just so you know where I am. Okay. Anger is an emotion that occurs when we want to change someone's behavior and believe we can do so. Consider a fight with a spouse or a friend or a fellow church member. I added that. If you were upset and got angry, was your goal to push her out of your life entirely? Last time you were angry. Maybe it was. Maybe your goal was to push that person out of your life completely. I don't think the friend who, who got so upset with me about not being a vocal supporter of a candidate in the last election, I don't think she wanted to push me out of her life forever. I hope she didn't. I want to, I want to be marked to her Paul. I want to come back to her. But at any rate... Um, If you got upset and got angry, was your goal to push the other person out of your life entirely? Did you suppose that the person was motivated by her hatred for you? Okay. Of course not. That's his answer. I'm not sure always. Sometimes I I think these things can be moved, but I, I like his argument. Anger at least engages Anger shows up and talks. Lessons from the Council of Jerusalem. Anger shows up and talks. OK? Contempt, contempt, though, listen to this: attempts to mock, shame and permanently exclude from relationships by belittling, humiliating and ignoring. You get the distinction between anger and contempt? Contempt says, when I behave contemptuously towards you, I'm saying, you are less human than I am. Saying, you are a, and then throw some epithets, some dirty language, some, some belittling, demeaning characterizations in there reduce the other to less than human and what are you saying as a Christian when you do that you're saying Christ didn't die for you or at least he didn't die as much for you as he did for me and what does Jesus say about that Jesus hanging on the cross does what he looks down at those who are executing them who have wrongfully illegally Found him, get guilty, flogged him, flayed him, put crowns on his head, taken him to the cross, nailed him to it as he's bleeding out. What's he saying? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Not contempt. Is Jesus angry? You bet. <laughs> you bet he was angry. But he was also loving, forgiving, and ready to engage. Paul's denied him the night before. What does Jesus do post-resurrection? He finds himself there out on, on the water <laughs> with Peter. Engaging, showing up, being part of the conversation. No contempt. Is there anger towards I think there is anger towards Peter. Peter's been part of the, part of the mob himself. He became that, that way after saying he wouldn't. And the cock crowed three times and he was right there doing it, Right? But Jesus still engaged and still hung in there with him. And his message to Peter all along was, Yes, Peter, I died for you. Yes, Peter, I died for you. Do you love me? Do you love me? And you know that, that word changes, you know, on, on the third one in the Greek. It's really, do you like me? <laughs> Jesus asking him at that point, do you like me? How do you not like Jesus?" Well, um, anger isn't ruining our politics and I want to say anger is not ruining our church. Okay to be angry go out and be angry with your bishop as much as you want to be because anger doesn't foreclose the possibility of dialogue It doesn't foreclose the possibility of a relationship contempt The dismissive attitude that those with whom one disagrees don't deserve to be taken seriously because they are liars or idiots or both is the bigger danger. This review was from uh, last week, March 12th. The book's just out, evidently. Uh, Arthur C. Brooks, Love Your Enemies. You want to please give that back to me, but Um, so many people who left our church 15 years ago, I think were angry and didn't, didn't understand that showing up, being in relationship and remaining in conversation is the essence of, of what you and I are about. Um, so many people now in the church, and I've just come back from the house of bishops, I, f- I feel I'm being told we want you here in our midst. We're, we love you. You're one of us. We know we disagree on something significant. But, uh, but it, it feels different when I talk in the House of Bishops, when I'm stating my, my opinion. I don't, there, there may be a little edge of contempt beginning there. I don't know. I'm not going to judge them. But that could be the case. Certainly anger that some of us don't agree 100% with everything that's going on. The important thing is, though, I'm going to keep showing up. I'm going to, I'm going to come to see you every Lent whether you want me to or not. <laughs> because I want us to be in relationship no matter how angry you are at me for what I'm saying to you. That relationship is what Christ calls us to. And I do hope you, uh, you believe, as I do, that he died for all of us equally roman catholics came up with a great solution to this you know a thousand years ago we protestants tend to divide up and start new churches you know the the lutherans leave the catholics and become lutherans the anglicans split off and become anglicans you know the english do and others around the world have since what the year 1100 1200 1400 whatever it was we tend to divide our churches. Catholics have a great solution. They just start different orders of monasteries. <laughs> really. And, and that's how they saw it. They all stay in one church together. They never see each other because they're all living in different monasteries. But, but that was the Catholic solution. Uh, and I had some beautiful notes that I wrote about. You know, first, first were the Benedictines who, uh, uh, they, they, they went off and huddled by themselves because they they wanted to worship uh, the aesthetics of church and beauty and holiness and a, and a holy lifestyle. And then the, the Dominicans split off from them because they want to emphasize the truth of preaching and the essence of preaching. And then the Franciscan, St. Francis, comes back and says, I'm going to restore true Christianity. We're going to, uh, we're going to uh, talk about goodness and hope and, uh, and the love of God and seeing God in our neighbor. Uh, I think of the three I tend to like the Franciscans and and what they were doing the most. But it's interesting they were all able to stay in the same church. Worship the same God and yet take their divisions away uh, uh, on their uh, uh, and and out of the mainline life of worship and of understanding uh, salvation themselves. Um couple of more minutes do I have a couple of more minutes or is it quarter till got five minutes Do do you mind if I use two of them thank you Jesus came to us took on human flesh and joined us in our journey through the bleak wasteland of sickness despair poverty death anger contempt. He lived for us and ultimately died for us so that we could experience new life. We could experience new life in him. The life he offers is not only one that lasts forever. It is a hope-filled promise for today. He came, he tells us, and I believe it, that you and I might have life and have it to the full. That promise is what this Lenten season and the coming Easter season is about. Being restored from death to new life. Overcoming anger. Being equipped to understand, handle, and forgive contempt even. And forgive contempt, forgive the one who considers us to be less than human because we don't agree. Our disobedience, all of these other, the the contempt, the anger, was redeemed by his sacrifice on the cross and his victory over the grave. Paul wrote that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Our calling, it's not a rule, it's a calling, it's a vocation. Our calling is to trust in what Jesus has done for us. To trust in what he's done for us and ultimately to recognize one simple statement. Romans 8.1 In Christ, there is no condemnation. I don't care if you disagree with me. I don't care if we don't vote the same. I don't care if we don't go to the same church any longer. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. I need those words for my own sake. And the gift that God has given us is the ability to apply those words to others As well. Thank you all so much. It's been fun to be with you. I hope these I've just offered a few reflections and I hope they may be of some use to you. Anybody who asks you what happened with the bishop tonight, just say he didn't give me a bit of advice. (laughs) Thank you all. God bless.